Hello there and welcome into this edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Comedian Michael Jr. joined me recently on The Meeting House to discuss a new movie available on video on demand Father's Day weekend, a movie that portrays a dad who learns that his satisfaction in life is not in what he does, but in who he is. You'll be hearing from that conversation coming up. Plus, I talked with Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Beltsville, Maryland recently. His church hosted a recent listening session that included the vice president, Mike Pence. He lays out some biblical practical solutions to addressing issues surrounding race. Plus, from the ministry of Back to the Bible and its research arm, the Center for Bible Engagement, Arnie Cole offers statistical data that examines how churches are weathering the coronavirus pandemic and how their ministries will be changing after the crisis has passed. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll hear from Robert Jeffress of First Baptist Church of Dallas, who, in his latest book, emphasizes the importance of prayer for our nation and offers some specific areas in which we can all be praying. Then, maybe parents have found that summer plans for their kids have been challenged and are looking for ways to provide fun and enriching activities during the summer. Susan Alexander Yates, who has over 20 grandchildren, offers suggestions in a new resource. Finally, Charles Martin crafts works of fiction that feature characters who exhibit brokenness yet are attempting to find their way, stories that are infused with biblical truth. You'll find out about his latest coming up. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Well, I had a chance recently to catch up with comedian Michael Jr. He talked about a new movie available on video on demand Father's Day weekend, June 19th to be specific. It's a movie called Selfie Dad, in which the main character learns that his satisfaction in life is not in what he does, but in who he is. Here now from that recent conversation is Michael Jr. Basically, the character I play, Ben Marcus, is a he has a good sense of humor. It's just life has kind of beat him down, and now he just he's a, he has a job as a reality TV editor, and he's just miserable at it. And it's, his boss is played by the hilarious Shonda Pierce, but in this movie, <laughs> she's not hilarious, and his job is extremely, extremely hard. He's miserable. And then he decides, he gets an idea, really, from watching his son. He decides to make a YouTube video, and he makes another one, and it kind of blows up, and he starts to actually get what he wants. But at the same time, he's losing what it is he really needs, what he already has. So then through some different channels, someone recommends that he reads the Bible, which is, he's like, read the Bible? I got too much stuff. I don't have time to read the Bible. And then... He resists, and some cool stuff happens, and weird stuff happens. It goes in a circle, and and then comedy ensues, and funny stuff, and it just it ends up at this place that people aren't necessarily expecting, maybe from a, a faith-based film. But it's it's really kind of cool. It's really cool what happens at the end, and the fact that the directors, the director and the producer were they were strong enough and nice enough, and they brought me on because of my ability to create content on the spot. So a lot of the scenes were just made up pretty much um, <laughs> on the spot. Like we we had a script, we got what we wanted, but then some of the things we just kind of improv. And from two perspectives, meaning we improv for the funny, but we also improv in the way of we listen to what God wanted us to do in the moment and actually did that thing. And the way it all comes together in the end is pretty awesome. Your listeners should look at the film. When they watch the movie, 
I dare you to watch and try to do the math on which one of the scenes or how many of the scenes <laughs> are completely improv, made it. up on the spot, <laughs> with no, and, and how many are actually scripted. Like, it'll actually be a fun little thing for you to do to see if you can find which one. In fact, I'll give them a hint. At the beginning, there's one that's my favorite. At the beginning, the daughter is in a play. We find out that she's in a play, and the dad knows nothing about this play. She's in the play called Grease at school, and the dad knows nothing about it. At the towards the end of the movie, there's a scene at night in the hallway with the daughter and the dad that happens that makes this amazing connection. But if you don't look for it, you'll completely miss it. So because you're listening to this program right now, you'll know to look for it. And when you see it, I think you I think you're gonna be pretty pleased with it. So what what is different about doing film than doing, say, just a, a, a stand up comedy routine in front of a crowd? Well, so what what has to happen, especially with selfie dad, um, it's because the dad figures out how to fix stuff. He makes videos about fixing things. <laughs> but what happens in the in the in the uh, on set when we film the movie is I have to have faith that the content that I'm presenting is going to move the audiences either to tears or to laugh. So, but on stage, it doesn't take that much faith because I have instant uh, response or reaction. I know immediately, and I can kind of change and move. But on a movie set, you just got the camera crew there, the lighting guys, the director, and nobody's really laughing out loud or responding out loud because they'll mess up the take. So I literally had to go by faith that these things were working, that they were hitting like they need to hit. And then once I saw this in front of people, I was then I was able to kind of take a, um, a deep breath, so to speak, and really enjoy and know. Even though I had an instinct, I knew that it would that it would come across right, but I didn't know for sure until I saw it in front of people. So it just takes a lot more faith, uh, what, which is which is hilarious because it kind of lines up with what God does for us. Like we always want an instant instant feedback from Him, but sometimes it takes a little while. There's a process, there's a production, and there's a, like there's a process that has to take place. Not necessarily on on God's part, but more so on our part before we really are able to receive what he asked for us. So I'm pumped about that. So, yeah, that's a great question, man. That's kind of how it goes down. So I think people are actually going to see in this movie, like I'm just delivering the lines. I'm just looking right at the camera, and I don't know. Like there's one where I talk about the Bible. There's a line there where I talk about what what I thought the Bible was. So I don't know anything about at at the beginning, but then at the end you kind of see how it grows. So I'm really excited to see how people respond to this movie because, again, these ingredients have existed together in a movie before of, of laughter and truth and Bible. Wow. So I'm excited. Michael Jr. here on The Intersection. Learn more about the film by going to the website SelfieDadMovie.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's the senior pastor of Hope Christian Church in Beltsville, Maryland, and founder and chairman of the High Impact Leadership Coalition, Bishop Harry Jackson. In our conversation, he offered comments relative to the murder of George Floyd, how the church can mobilize to address racial issues, and a listening session at his church attended by Vice President Pence. From that conversation, this is Harry Jackson now. I think the cry of the people is, do something, do something now. And in the absence of White House direction, there are all these voices. Now, yesterday... The president uh, 
began to talk about what I'm going to call a task force and a new commission on policing and some wonderful things at the federal level that are concrete that I don't have time to go into the details thereof to right now. But I think that that's what the masses are crying for. And they're saying, we're going to keep marching until we feel like somebody's hurt us. And uh, that's what's not happening is that feeling of being hurt. Is it emotional? Yes. Is it psychological? Yes. Is it spiritual? I say yes. Now, we need a biblical response to the question in every region is where are the pastors, where are the mm. churches, given guidance to say, MLK said nonviolent protests. And here's what we're going to do. So it's an opportunity for the church to rise up, to be a balm of Gilead and a healing staff in America. And I believe we were born for this day. It's our Esther moment. And we're going to see the glory of God manifest in our midst. Well, and that is very hopeful because we we do look we do look at the crisis nature of what we're facing now, and we recognize, as I've said, you know, when there is a crisis, there is the potential to release the presence of Christ. So, as we look at how the church can be involved, and I know you've spoken and written extensively about this, and I would I have a hunch that's what your upcoming book is going to be about, but what could you offer us as maybe a couple of talking points here as far as you know, seeing this crisis, and the world has had its opportunity to try to, to so- solve some of these issues. How does the church now step up in this hour and be the church and be a voice in this culture? I think the answer is very, very simple. The problem is whose resources and whose emotional uh, strength and spiritual strength will we use to make it happen? In other words, does the church have the courage? Does it have the conviction? And is it willing to put his money where his mouth is? First of all, I think we have a problem that is spiritual. It's a sin mm-hmm. problem. I think what we have to do is simply decide that there is no global silver bullet for this problem. And simply say the answer in Montgomery, Alabama is going to be different than Prince George's County in Maryland. And it may have some of the similar themes, but what you need locally is a band of leadership that's going to commit themselves to say, I'm going to die on this hill. In other words, I'm going to do something that's going to make a difference in this arena. And I am going to believe that I can do exactly that. And it's not how fast I do it. Uh, It's how persistent I am. 
Harry Jackson here on The Intersection. His website address is harryjacksonministries.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's the CEO of Back to the Bible and Director of Research for the Center for Bible Engagement, Arnie Cole. In our conversation, he offered some statistics that project what church might be like in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis. Here now is Arnie Cole. We did some longitudinal stuff with pastors, congregants, and uh, and then the occasional church attender. You know, the one who comes on a wedding, maybe Christmas, once or twice a year. So we looked at all three groups, and interestingly enough, to our surprise, um, all three groups look at this situation completely different than the others. So starting with the pastors, um, as you would hope, um, their faith has actually gotten stronger, and they uh, they are pretty sure that once we get through this pandemic thing is, is going to be uh, uh, about the same, uh, maybe even attendance a little better. So um, pastors are, are pretty positive um, with, <clears throat> with what they're seeing. And that, I think we've gone back to the pastors two or three times and, and we've, we've seen that. Uh, matter of fact, there's a good percentage that even feel stronger in their faith. So they, they haven't lost ground um, at all. And um, however, one, one sad thing is about 40% of them have reported that uh, giving is down. So that, that's a major concern, of course, sure. uh, of the pastor. So as you look at those those other categories, the regular church attenders, as well as the, well, as we might say, the not-so-regular church attenders, how are they being affected? Yeah, the regular attenders were really pretty interesting. Uh, and that's the group uh, that attends uh, three to four times a month, um, so almost every uh, Sunday. Uh, that's your core that um, uh, really takes care of the church. And what what we found from them is, um, to their surprise, I think it was 45% had never even been on an online church service before the pandemic. And afterwards, um, they love online. And to the point, and we've surveyed the general attenders, I think now three different times, and we're seeing this thing that, uh, boy, our church better continue to have an online presence because I really like it. And then the solid attenders are also saying that th- we not only watch our local church, but we w- watch one of six mega churches. And w- we like this. We like this way of, of growing spiritually. And, uh, So, you know, we started looking at that and we saw, oh, my goodness, there's between 25 to 35 percent of the regular church attenders are saying, you know, we may not come back to church uh, the way that we used to attend or we may not even come back to our local church at all. So so that's where, you know, we thought, oh, man, red flag, you know, what what can we do here? Um, so that this doesn't happen. When you talk about the the not-so-regular church attendees, it does seem if they are beginning to watch some online services, then you're able to engage with them like never before. Yeah, that was 
see, Bob, you should be a researcher. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. It is, uh, um, so, you know, for us churchgoers, you see some guy come once a year, and, you know, maybe after four years, you say, oh, yeah, I think I've seen him before. You, you know, well, you don't consider them a part of your church community. You might think, oh, wow, I'd really like to, but you don't. You know, and you may be friendly to the guy, but, you know, how that goes. Well, what was so fascinating in this research is that they feel connected to their local church, even though they don't attend mm. or attend once a year. And those people actually, when their local church went online, they started watching and enjoying. And there's maybe 16, 20% that say, hey, when this pandemic thing gets over, I'm going to go to my local church, my body of believers, my community, uh, which was just, wow, what a tremendous opportunity for the local church. Arnie Cole here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website centerforbibleengagement.org. This is The Intersection, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. The Intersection can also be found in that Media Center. Plus, you can subscribe via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there's a link to video content. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app at a variety of podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas and speaker on the radio program Pathway to Victory, Robert Jeffress discussed his book, Praying for America, 40 Inspiring Stories and Prayers for Our Nation, and commented on specific prayer topics. From that recent conversation, this is Robert Jeffress now. Somebody once said, socialism works until you run out of other people's money. Well, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, Christianity works until you run out of other people's faith. And I think for so many years, we have been depending upon the faith of our fathers or grandfathers for a general collective unity in this country of uh, a common agreed upon moral values. There is no common understanding anymore. There is no general acceptance of the Bible as God's Word, and I think that is going to almost make unity impossible. There is no unity apart from a unifying belief in God and His Word. And I think, you know, you spoke about the horrible thing with George Floyd. We need as Christians to speak out unapologetically against racism. Uh, God hates racism. When you hate a man or woman because of the color of their skin, you, ha you hate the God who gave them the color of their skin. But we also need to speak out with equal passion that God hates lawlessness. And in fact, 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And, uh, you know, we say often you can't legislate morality. Well, you can legislate certain behavior, 
But what you can't legislate is the attitude that produces that behavior. That only comes from a transformed heart that comes from Jesus Christ. And this is a time, I think, Bob, for the church like never before to be focused on sharing the unchangeable truth of Jesus Christ. So as we look at praying for unity in our nation and specifically in the church, how can we hold out hope for that? How can we respond in prayer to it? You just put your finger on it when you said praying for unity in the church. John 17, that was Jesus' prayer, that we might—he's talking about the church—that we might all be one. That doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we agree on every secondary or tertiary issue, but remember uh, the words of uh, Scripture— they, uh, they shall know you are my disciples by your love for one another. The church is to mirror unity, what it means to truly love people regardless of their race or their economic background. And, uh, you know, we can't control how the world responds, but we are responsible for the church of Jesus Christ. And I think we're to be exhibit A to the entire world of the unifying power of Jesus Christ. Why is it important to pray for our leaders, and how can we be more effective in doing that? Well, first of all, our leaders are human beings. They get discouraged. They need wisdom. Uh, they need to uh, feel the prayers of God's people for them. And, you know, the Bible says the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands to turn whichever way he wants. We ought to pray for our leaders, that they would be sensitive to God's leading in their life. And they need the wisdom like never before right now. And look, uh, of course, everybody knows President Trump is a friend of mine. I pray for him. But I would pray for whoever is occupying the Oval Office, because if the president succeeds, the nation succeeds. If the president fails, the nation fails. And uh, we're to pray for all those in authorities, not just the ones for whom we voted, but we're to pray for everyone. There's tremendous pressure on those who are are actually charged with preserving the law, enforcing the law today. How can we pray for those that are in these positions, whether it be law enforcement or first responders or, or military? Look, I have a personal connection to that. My brother was a Dallas policeman for 30 years. He would be the first to tell you there are some bad cops out there, but it's also the minority, not the majority. And I think, first of all, we do need to call out uh, any police officer, any soldier that abuses his place of authority. Uh, in Romans 13, Paul talks about uh, those who are in authority. Uh, in Paul's day, of course, there was no distinction between soldiers and police. They were called ministers of God, sent to, run, uh, to render punishment for those who practice evil. And that's an interesting phrase that God would use the phrase ministers of God to refer to law enforcement officials. But uh, that's God's plan to preserve uh, society, to protect society against evildoers. So I think we ought to uh, pray for them. We ought to reverence them. We ought to certainly call them out when they're wrong, but we need to do everything we can to support them. Robert Jeffress here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website ptv.org. Next, it's the author of Cousin Camp, 
A grandparent's guide to creating fun, faith, and memories at last, Susan Alexander Yates, who has 21 grandchildren. In our conversation, she offered some insight into this concept, as well as direction for parents who wish to organize a camp for their kids. She's developed a resource called Camp at Home, 100 Practical Ideas for Families. Here now is Susan Alexander Yates. We think basically through three columns, needs, goals, program, so that your program grows out of the needs of the people coming. So we write down the names of the kids coming to camp that particular year, and we ask, okay, what are their needs emotionally, socially, physically, mentally, spiritually? For example, do we have a new four-year-old coming who emotionally is going to feel a little bit insecure? So the goal there is that that child would feel secure, and so the program would be that that child sleeps with her siblings um, because siblings give a sense of security, especially for the new campers. And so we go through this process. We also write the parents and say, tell us about your kids, because kids change year to year. And when you don't live in the same town with all of your grandchildren, you don't know them as well as you'd like to. So we send out a letter, to an email to the parents and say, tell us about each child. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Where do you see them shine? Is one a helper? Is one a natural leader? What are they into? Are they into sports? Are they into art? Are they into cooking? Are they into electronics? We, though we don't have any uh, devices at camp. It's a device-free camp. Mm. Uh, and we get a, a real feel for each child. And also we ask the parents, you know, what would you love to see happen as a result of camp? in your child's life. There may be a parent who says, don't put my son who's six close to his brother who's seven. You know, it's a toxic toxic relationship right now. So that's helpful for us to know because we also, we try throughout all the activities at camp to separate siblings. So the purpose is to get to know their cousins. After we sort of think through this process, then we schedule our days. And usually camp has different blocks. Some of our listeners can't even think about planning a family reunion or a camp right now because you're still having to shelter in place and you're maybe going crazy, a little bit crazy, and you're tired of each other and you're grouchy and your kids are grouchy. And I think the parents that are having the hardest time are the parents of toddlers and the parents mm. of teenagers. You know, the teenagers are desperate to see their friends. And so that's why I developed this free download. It's just 12 pages, it's a free download that has 100 ideas. It's taken from Cousin Camp and enlarged for the, this time of the pandemic. But it's 100 things that you can do at home, whether you have toddlers or teenagers, or it also has ideas for families to do together and for grandparents and how they can reach out to their grandkids. And that's just available at my website, which is just SusanAlexanderYates.com. And if you would, Susan... Share with us maybe some of these notable ideas. Of course, there are a hundred of them. Time does not permit <laughs> us to cover each and every one, but are right. there there may be some some general broad Probably. ideas that you well, can yeah. lead us with. I'll share a couple. The easiest thing for parents of young children, look toddlers, you know, preschoolers, is to go out and collect some rocks and go on a rock hunt and get sort of flat rocks that are a little bit big that will fit in the palm of their hands and bring them back and paint them. Have a rock painting artistic time. It's so easy. It doesn't cost you any money. And then you can make a rock garden with all these lovely painted rocks. Another idea that I use that works with every age child 
is I go to a house under construction, and the good news is that construction in an industry is is pretty much booming right now for because they're outside. And so I find a house under construction, and I ask the workers if they would save me some of the little pieces of wood, the discards, and just put them in a pile, and I'll come back in a week and collect them. And I go back and collect them in large garbage bags, take them home, and I have about five hammers, and I have a whole set of nails. You need nails that are short, not too long, with big heads. They're easier. And we have a creative building project every summer and every age likes this the little ones make very simple things and then often will paint what they've made um the larger kids last year uh some of my teenagers developed on a piece of plyboard they had about 50 different nails and a ping pong ball at the top and they developed a maze and a contest for the ping pong balls having to run down this maze of nails so that's a winner. It doesn't cost you anything, just some nails and hammers, and you just collect wood. So those would be two things. Another camp stable that you can also do at home that's sort of become a tradition, you will build things that become traditions, is we have our county's largest banana split every <laughs> summer. Susan Yates here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to SusanAlexanderYates.com. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's novelist Charles Martin who shared with me about his latest book called The Waterkeeper, a work of Christian fiction which features a broken man who is trying to find his way, a book that includes a plot point involving human trafficking. Here now from that conversation is Charles Martin. Murphy Shepard is a priest living in the northeast corner of Florida on an abandoned island. He's sort of the shadow priest of a chapel that no one attends. Great. His best friend his best friend dies. He agrees to bury his, his ashes at the end of the world where they met, which is around Key West or the Dry Tortugas. So he hops in his boat and begins idling down the intercoastal where he intersects a woman who's frantically looking for her runaway daughter. And what you learn very quickly is that while she did run away, she's been kidnapped into the sex trafficking world. They've put an auction up on the black web. The clock is ticking. Bidders are posting amounts from international accounts around the world. And they're going to unload her when they get to Key West. So his time frame is short. But what you learn rather quickly is that while Murphy is a priest, he's kind of also a priest. And he's done something else for a long time. And he's really good at it. So beneath the surface i think it's a really beautiful love story there are about three love stories kind of woven together and i loved the way that somehow at this point in my career after 14 novels i was able to take action and really what feels like more of a plot driven narrative and weave in complex characters that i think you fall in love with and you care about and you you're pulling for mm. Why is it that you decided to actually include this whole area of sex trafficking in the novel? About two years ago, I was on a book tour, went to my hotel, and a man intersected me purposefully. I, he was headed to his room, and I learned this later. And he asked me, he said, hey, I've just paid for some time with these girls in this room, and sometimes they like an audience, and they like someone to join us. Would you? And I it really made me angry and I mm. obviously told him sure. no, but I began unpacking that and kind of doing my own research and, and figured out that that hotel was routinely used for sex trafficking. And the girls in that room were probably 10 or 11, 12, maybe a little bit older. 
And it just made me mad. And it's the slavery of our day. So as I began looking at this novel and this idea and this theme that we are all worth rescue and that the shepherd really does leave the safety of the flock to find the one because the needs of the one outweigh those of the 99, it became, an, it became a natural or organic sort of context for the story that I was writing. Shortly after I had this unfortunate experience at the motel with this guy, I was somewhere in Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 is Matthew's retelling or his own version of what Luke does in Luke 15. And in Matthew 18, we hear Jesus telling the parable of the shepherd who leaves the flock and goes to find the one stupid sheep who gets itself lost time and time again. <laughs> and what we learn is that the shepherd routinely does this like over and over, and he risks himself to, to find the sheep who has gone quote-unquote astray. And then when he finds the sheep, he brings them back and throws a party that's greater than the 99 who stayed. And I, for one, for some reason, one day I got stuck on this you know, parable. And I'm like, it makes, that, is, that, is the, that is the most illogical thing I've ever heard. Like what shepherd in his right mind would do that. And yet that's the story of the gospel. That's what Jesus does for us. He routinely rescues us. And mean, scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's, it's just that in the kingdom of God, in the economy of the kingdom, it, what is illogical to us is totally logical to him. And so somewhere I got just, you know, just thinking about that, thinking about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one and what it, what it led me to believe, that, which is he's, he's proven time and time again, is that no matter what decisions we make and no matter what, what sin we cover ourselves up in, no matter how far we get from home, no matter all that stuff, each one of us is still worth rescue. And we, we are worth the life of the king of all kings. I mean, that's why scripture says we were the joy set before him. So... That's a short answer to a really big question. Charles Martin here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to charlesmartinbooks.com. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection. The podcast can also be found in the Media Center. Plus, there's a link to iTunes through which you can subscribe. You can find that at the homepage at meetinghouseonline.info. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And the other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. And there's a link to video content. Conversations from the Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.